Kia ora, and welcome to Venn Presents, a series of conversations exploring the depth and richness of the Christian tradition between the host Sam Bloor and members of the Venn team and wider Venn community. Each short series of Venn Presents will expand on some of the themes that have emerged from Venn's work, including our programs, events, books, and our monthly publication Common Ground. The topics will be wide-ranging, from exploring Christian faith and doctrine to engagement with wider culture, including family, business, the arts, education, music, and sport. Our hope is that through each series of Venn Presents, you'll be able to reimagine how the gospel might look in the communities and callings you find yourself in today. Now let's go ahead and listen to the latest episode. At last, the three companions turned away, and never again looking back, they rode slowly homewards. And they spoke no word to one another until they came back to the Shire, but each had great comfort in his friends on the long grey road. At last, they rode over the downs and took the east road, and then Mary and Pippin rode on to Buckland, and already they were singing again as they went. But Sam turned to Bywater, and so came back up the hill as day was ending once more. And he went on, and there was yellow light and fire within, and the evening meal was ready, and he was expected. And Rose drew him in and set him in his chair and put little Eleanor upon his lap. He drew a deep breath. Well, I'm back, he said. Well, welcome back to part two of this podcast, Tolkien, Fantasy and the Arts. My name's Sam Bloor, and I'm once again joined by my good friend and colleague from the Venn Foundation, Andrew Shamey. Good to have you back, Andrew. Thanks, Sam. Good to be back. <laughs> this is part two of this uh, two-parter that we're doing, sort of starting with the life of Tolkien, but but uh, talking about fantasy more generally and uh, a little bit towards the end of this part uh, in terms of the, the, the arts. We opened part one. Uh, with the beginning of The Hobbit. And what we've just heard then was the end of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, actually read by J.R.R. Tolkien's son, Christopher uh, Tolkien. And really, his legacy has a lot to thank Christopher for, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, in many ways, Christopher Tolkien's an unsung hero here. um, J.R.R. Tolkien published in his lifetime The Hobbit, The Lord of the Rings, a few other sort of minor works. Um, but it was Christopher Tolkien who inherited his dad's papers mm. and has consistently um, brought them out for publication. So wow. it, we introduced a bit of Tolkien's life earlier. Um, something I, I didn't mention was he, he fought in World War I, um, and that had a profound impact on his life. Mm. Um, he he lost many friends uh, during that period. And... He was uh, in the trenches mm. in in Europe and got trench fever, which is some sort of thing caused by lice. I don't know the details, but he had to go into recovery. And there, uh, he, in 1914, actually began to write uh, the stories that made up this whole world of uh, 
Middle Earth, of the world of Arda, that um, that Lord of the Rings and Hobbit come out of. So he began in 1914. Wow. He never in- finished this this you know collected. Um, sort of overarching collection of stories and myths and this universe almost universe isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, he was throughout his life trying to get it published, and uh, the publishers um, were really hesitant. It was a book um, eventually called The Silmarillion. Mm, okay, yes. Which describes the first age of Middle Earth. Lord of the Rings is set in the third age, and Christopher Tolkien inherited seventy boxes of papers. So thousands of papers that he wow. sort of brought together and over a labor of many years, eventually um, the Silmarillion came out of it, which is just a wonderful book published in, I think it was 1977, so four years after his father's death, um, which looks at that history of the First Age. And then a number of other books have come out of it. And there's now a 12-volume uh, history of Middle-earth, which looks at the evolution of these stories over time. Uh, so Christopher Tolkien did this incredible sort of, yeah. Um, how would you describe it? So it's almost an archaeology, literary archaeology, yeah, patching yeah. together these stories. And they're inc- incredibly rich but just never quite finished in a publishable form by um, J.R.R. Tolkien himself. Uh, I mean, to put to that in perspective, he, he's beginning in 1914. Hobbit doesn't come out till 1937. So yeah. we are talking 23 years. He's yeah. been sort of ruminating on these ideas. Yeah. This world has been yeah. has been sort of growing in his in his mind. And I yeah. imagine it's a mind that, that isn't still for long. Like that's a, no. that's a fertile imagination to have ideas bouncing around inside of it for 23 years before. And this is, I think, part why you end up with 70 boxes. Sure. <laughs> oh, um, yes. he, he, he kept reworking the stuff. One of the, I think, the joys of reading The Lord of the Rings is just a feeling of depth you get, that yes. there's a whole history behind that. Yes. And that hasn't been faked. You know, these references to, to previous events and characters and names that just sort of pop up. You can then go read those stories and and the places you meet, um, you 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 explore in Lord of the Rings, there's a whole history to those as well. So it's just, it, it's one of the most fully realised secondary worlds in in history, really. It's yes, just quite yes. achievement. And Christopher Tolkien has given us access to that. Um, so we really owe it to him. Yeah. Um, Lord of the Rings itself is, is, is I mean, that, that Silmarillion and turning 70 boxes into, into what that's become, enormous task. Um, in one of the documentaries, Christopher says, by the time Tolkien himself got to some of that, he just, you know, he's saying that with the love of a son, but just too old, really, didn't have the energy for it. And and so he's taken that on as his life's work. But Lord of the Rings itself was a massive work. And, you know, Tol- Tolkien's on record as saying, um, and certainly his family know this, that he, he wouldn't have... Uh, he wouldn't have completed it if it wasn't for the support of uh, of friends, uh, C.S. Lewis and others. So tell us a bit about what you know of, of their relationship, uh, the Inklings. Um, this sort of, you know, I, there's there's something about this this group that met to just hear each other's work and just to encourage each other in what they were doing that, that I find, um, yeah, pretty touching. Yeah, I think... And it feels like, in some ways, coming from another world <laughs> as well, in terms of this this Oxford uh, world of these sort of, um, in many cases, bachelor sort of scholars 
meeting together over a pint just to talk about ideas and literature. So um, Tolkien and Lewis were great mates, and actually Tolkien had a quite a profound impact on um, Lewis coming to faith. Um, their conversations really uh, helped Lewis wrestle with some of his questions about the Christian faith. But they together are part of a group called the Inklings, involved some other writers, um, Charles Williams, uh, who wrote sort of spiritual thrillers, uh, very odd books, um, uh, other other characters, Owen Barfield, some sort of lesser known names, but there was a, a, a group of sort of, um, not sure how to, the numbers ch- shifted over time, but they meet in a pub on Tuesday morning, the um, Eagle and Child, um, or the Bird and Baby, as they like to call it, um, pub, and and just talk about their literature. And then I, often on Thursday nights, I'd meet in C.S. Lewis's sort of rooms, Magdalen College, and they'd read out their, what they were working on and get mm. re- critique. Right. And for a long time, C.S. Lewis was the only one who'd heard Tolkien's works. Wow. Um, and Lewis was... Um, Tolkien said Lewis really was the person who made him feel there could be an audience for this. Lewis's own encouragement and enthusiasm for Tolkien's writing, I think, really uh, pushed Tolkien uh, to keep going. And and Sirius Lewis and, and Tolkien actually both, at one point early on in the friendship, said, there's just not enough of the literature we really love. We're going to have to write it ourselves. Wow. Yeah. Um, and so that um, led to Lewis's um, science fiction trilogy. Okay. And actually yeah. Tolkien started to work on a time travel story that never got anywhere, um, but little parts of it w- were woven back into the Silmarillion. So wow. and okay. some changed a lot over time. There's not a time machine. Um, but they really encouraged each other. So it's a, a beautiful story, actually, of friendship. Yes. I mean, some, some people will know that that, that, that friendship um, sort of, Got a bit more distanced when they got older. Um, partly, um, C.S. Lewis got married, and and just you know, um, they drifted apart. But you know, the family in the some of the quotes that I uh, came across were keen for people to know that there was no falling out. It was it was a bit of a drifting apart. And um, I think it's his uh, his daughter's got quite a neat quote here um, about him just uh, responding to C.S. Lewis's death. In a letter he wrote to me which is in response to a letter I wrote to him of sympathy after Lewis's death. He said that he had the normal feelings of a, of a man of his age who feels he's losing his leaves one by one, but that Lewis's death felt like an axe being taken to the roots, which I think is expresses far more than anything else what he must have felt pretty neat to hear about the importance of that support played and as you as you I'm listening to you in terms of what the, what the inklings were were doing for each other I think there's probably something in in the the heartbeat of the artist that needs that but indeed to a to a greater or lesser extent all of us eh? I mean in terms of the body of Christ doing what the body of Christ should do that's that's it right like that that sort of mutual support encouragement um, I guess critique when needed all of those things it's playing out in a very specific way here, but part of what we're probably longing for when we think of warm pints in the eagle and child is is that. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think um, for someone to say you're not crazy, that there's yep. something good here. Keep yes. going. Yes. Um, but it might be a 
artistic endeavor. It might be just the way you're choosing to live your life. We we need those yeah. encouragements and the the deep joy of a meeting of minds and hearts. Um, you know, and all those characters would have lost their friends during the world the world wars, particularly yes. World War One. Yes. So I can imagine uh, clinging to one another and knowing actually the the cost of loss as well to to lose French friends. I, I imagine it makes you value the ones you have in particular ways. In a moment, we'll pick up where we left off in terms of the things that fantasy is doing. Part one, we looked at some of those. We were uh, talking about recovery and escape. We're going to get to, to sort of consolation. But before we do that, you know, we've mentioned Christopher Tolkien. He, he did have a, a family, of course. So Christopher wasn't his only child. Um, so, yeah, tell us tell us just a bit about his, uh, his family, Edith, his wife, and kids. Yeah, so Tolkien met Edith when they were 16. She was an orphan uh, as well. And um, they just had a sort of a deep love for one another over many years. Uh, the, the movie Tolkien yeah. tells the story it of that courtship. Tell me a story in any language you want. Don't be ridiculous. The legend of Celador. No, I'm not a performing monkey. It begins with the arrival of a proud and opinionated princess. Yes, you're right about that. She demands entertainment. Princess Celador is bored. Bored of cakes and muffins and exquisite no. china. She longs for another life. It's not a name. What? Something else. Celador, it's not a princess's name, it can't be. Celador is a place. They had to wait a long time to get get married for a number of reasons. And yeah, they had four four children. And Tolkien was by all accounts a wonderful dad. So the Hobbit started as a just story. He told to his kids. Yes. And he, he wrote down, and it sort of only accidentally found its way to a publisher. Uh, he used to write letters um, from Santa Claus to his kids. Oh, yes. With I these wonderful that. illustrations. Yeah. And he developed this whole world where, you know, the, the polar bear was causing trouble. He'd come in, there were goblins. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, they've, yeah, they've yeah. now been published, but yeah. just incredibly uh, wonderful storyteller. Yeah. And he, he used those gifts for his kids. And yeah. so there's. Um, one of his son, one of his sons actually was sort of recalling that that for, for years they just had no idea that they weren't completely true. Yes. But he said one night, one night Christmas, he and one of the other boys were talking in bed and heard the sort of the door had opened a crack to sort of do it. But he stubbed his foot and said something like "Crikey!" in a in a in a, word, in a way that they knew was only their dad. But they were like they never let on. Until they were adults that they'd sort of known, because I imagine they didn't want to sort of puncture the, the fantasy. Yeah. Now we're talking about fantasy, they just wanted it to continue because of just uh, how, how marvellous it was for them to inhabit this every Christmas. Yeah, he'd write, um, you know, do a different type of write, handwriting, a sort of shaky handwriting to sort of mimic, you know, the different characters. So the polar bear would write little notes and uh, just quite wonderful. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's glorious. 
Okay, so picking up on, uh, on on these things that sort of Tolkien says, um, these these sort of things that fantasy is doing, if that's not to, to sort of instrumentalise it too much. But one was recovery, uh, the other was uh, was was a, two was escape, and then and then consolation. Yeah, I, so literary uh, critic Lev Grossman, I, I think we might talk about him a bit later for his own writing, but uh, he calls Lewis and Tolkien uh, virtuosos of longing. Uh, okay. So another uh, sort of fantasy critic, Rosemary Jackson, talks about fantasy as a, a literature of desire. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So for Tolkien and his um, his lecture on fairy tales, this is the third sort of gift of fantasy is is consolation, mm. uh, and he talks about it in several ways. He says part of it is just quite trivial in some ways. These. In fantasy literature, we sort of meet these simple curiosities. He talks about, of you know, the desire to visit free as fish the deep sea or the longing for the noiseless, gracious, economical flight of a bird. So there's those, you know, you get to do that in a yes. fantasy story. Um, but some of those consolations are more pr- profound and actually touching on some of the, the deep longings of the human, human heart, really. So he talks about um, the desire to converse with other living things or to survey the depths of space and time. Is actually these longings that fantasy uh, can meet. I think he's got in view there this idea of actually um, con- feeling connected to the world in a way that that modern disenchanted world doesn't allow anymore. Right. So we yes. talked about that last time. The fantasy, there's a longing we have to feel connected to a, a, a cosmos that's full of other living beings. And fantasy, you know, you can talk to animals in it. You can talk to trees. Um, you feel connected to this, this world. And then he talks about the longing to escape death. That, that yep. he said there's that, that, you know, most stories have someone escaping death. Yes. And finally he talks about the, the longing for a happy ending. Mm. He, he talks about the sense that there's, for most human beings, a deep desire for things to turn out well, mm. for good to prevail in the end. And he, he talks about the happy ending as almost uh, a, a definitional part of what makes a fairy story. He's not talking like the happily ever after of a nursery story. Everyone gets married and it all ends happily ever after. He's talking about... Those moments in a great story where things are at their most dark, where evil seems just on the verge of winning, where there's a, a sudden joyous turn, there's a miraculous embracing of, of grace, uh, and we have a, almost a catch of breath. He talks about it as joy, joy beyond the walls of the world, poignant as grief. So it's a deep longing we have that fantasy... Uh, offers some consolation, we get to experience that. Um, so with fantasy, there's that heightened reality, that world, it's a heightened reality that um, for Tolkien, he'd say we're, we're both by, we're nat- by nature both material and spiritual beings. Mm. Mm. And in a world that sort of denies spiritual reality, we can't ever be fully satisfied. But in fantasy stories and mythic stories, the material and the spiritual come together in particular ways. And so there is a deep longing that's met in reading fantasy stories. So I think that's true. That's certainly been my experience. Um, 
And it's the nature of what we're escaping into to pick up that language of escape. And it's part of our recovery is to encounter, again, those sort of consoling realities. I love that phrase, uh, virtuosos of longing. Um, and uh, it's Lev Grossman that we have to thank for that. He's also quite critical of uh, Tolkien's work, isn't he? Um, and C.S. Lewis as well. Because he says, you know, at, at the end of the day, <laughs> I've got to come back to my world. Uh, my consolation ends when I have to close the book and come and come back. So just explain a little bit about how he has interacted with, with this and, and what his critique is. Uh, Grossman's actually just a really fascinating character because he's he's deeply appreciative of say Lewis and Tolkien. There's a there's a real appreciation of what they offer, um, but he wants to be critical. I think ultimately of um, Tolkien and then Lewis as well. But that this idea of yeah that any permanent recovery, any Escape that's not just escapism or any real consolation is offered. So he he's written a book, a series of book called uh, the first one's called The Magicians, mm. which follows a uh, New Yorker um, high schooler called Quentin Coldwater, who grows up reading a series of books based in a magical land called Fillory, and Fillory is a, a sort of um, a deliberate sort of parody, really, or echo of Narnia. Okay. There's talking yes. animals in it. Yep. Um, English school children just stumble into it and have these queers. Um, but he, in the way he tells a story, um, actually he's sort of, in the end, it's a critique of that picture of fantasy we've been talking about. So mm. the character Quentin Coldwater, his his last name is a clue. There's a throwing off on of cold water here. He discovers that magic is sort of just a bit boring in the end. It's mm-hmm. almost like, this technology that he's got to learn, it's hard. Um, his quest ends up being not really about anything particularly meaningful. It's a right. bit fake. Um, and he returns to his world, and he's not better. He's, right. It hasn't yeah. been able to heal any of his wounds. Yes. He's still unhappy. The world doesn't feel particularly more meaningful. So it's a, it is a real critique, I think, of Tolkien saying, hey, we do have to close the book. Hmm. We do have to come back to our world, and our world's not like this. Mm. Our longing has been awakened in Tolkien that our world can't satisfy. Right, yes. And that's the critique. Yes. And he's not saying it's not worth doing. Yeah, yeah. But he's saying, hey, actually, in the end, we're dissatisfied. To which Tolkien would reply, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> would he not? Yeah. No, I, I think... I think that's exactly right. That's part of um, this. I've come to see this as actually the fourth gift of fantasy. So if you think about Lord of the Rings, right at the heart of it is a story of enchantment and loss. So um, it's set actually in the past of our world. Middle Earth is actually part of our world. So we're in the fourth age. Um, it's in the third age. So we're already feeling loss because we're in the sort of more diminished future of Middle-earth. Right. The magic is somehow gone. Enchantment yes. has been lost. But the whole story, there's a, just a, a feeling of sort of um, beautiful things passing away. The elves are always singing about a more glorious past. I am 
going to sail off to the west. Galadriel says, I will diminish and go to the west. Right. Men have fallen from their heroic nature and, and dwindled over time. You know, the Ents have lost their wives. Um, the sort of Rivendell and these sort of quite enchanted territories are diminishing. Mm. And the whole story of the ring is that it's hard about enchantment and loss. Mm. The ring controls, the rings of power that the owls use to actually give life and enchantment to Middle Earth. When the one ring is destroyed, those rings will be destroyed. Yes. And so the enchantment will be lost. So at the heart of it, there is a story of enchantment and loss. And I think that's deliberate. The way I sort of see it is Tolkien has written a story that re-enchants our world, but ultimately so that we can become more aware of our disenchantment. Right, yes. He wants us to feel it as a loss. This disenchanted world we're, we're part of. He wants us to taste what enchanted world is and then feel it as a loss. But that's not a hopeless thing for Tolkien because he says ultimately this is in our true home. Mm. Mm. Um, he wrote in a letter once, human nature is still soaked with the sense of exile. There's a sense of we long to return to our true home. Mm. Um, the ending of this um, that we had heard Christopher Tolkien read gives us that feeling. You know, in the end, Frodo goes off into the west, and Sam goes home. Yes. Then Frodo kissed Mary and Pippin, and last of all Sam, and went aboard. The sails were drawn up, and the wind blew. And slowly the ship slipped away down the long grey firth. And the light of the glass of Galadriel that Frodo bore glimmered and was lost. And they're separated. This great friendship, they're separated. And you feel this longing for that time when they'll be reunited. Yes. And I think it makes us think of our own longing for true home. Yes. To enter into rest. And I think Tolkien's wanting us to feel that. Because yes. he believes actually this isn't ultimately our true home. The world as it is. Yes. And there is a home we've been called into. I mean, the whole time we've been you know, closing in on this, that, that well-known quote from C.S. Lewis, the, the fridge magneted quote comes to mind, doesn't it? If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. Or if we want to get really sort of the theological, this world put right. Yeah. This world finally put to rights so that um, it is re-enchanted and, and I am too and I'm able to participate in it uh, in all of the fullness and the richness that that once was and was, and was lost. Um, yeah, and Lewis, Lewis would say actually in many ways modern life is orchestrated or directed, he, he, this is a quote, directed to silencing this shy, persistent inner voice that we're made for something else. Right, yeah. So yeah. there's a sense in which the modern world is almost trying to squash that desire or say, no, no, that desire can be fulfilled by buying this thing or becoming like this or, you know, looking like this. And what Tolkien's trying to do, and Lewis as well in his own work, is say, hey, actually, no you've got to open up that wound. You've got to feel it. Yes. Uh, because there is an answer. Yes. Um, 
there's a quote I like by Colin Manlove who writes, our longings both join us to and show us our separation from God. Mm. Mm. So actually the mm. longing joys, joins us to God. It's actually a way to God. It, it sets us on the road as pilgrims to our true home mm. by showing us our separation. Mm. Um, and so I think that's one of the most profound gifts of good fantasy and there's, there's a lot of bad fantasy out there, but good fantasy that's doing what Tolkien is, that longing we feel should set us on the road as pilgrims. Mm. That awakened desire is actually a real gift. Mm. So those four, I guess, um, gifts of, of, of fantasy or, or the things that fantasy is doing, recovery, escape, consolation, and then you've sort of added this fourth one, fourth one and because consolation doesn't quite land the way it should, or none of them do, there's this uh, stirring up longing and, and a longing that's not met uh, sort of by by this world. Um, let's, having sort of covered those four, let's come up a level to just sort of Tolkien's worldview that's sort of animating uh, this. There's a great line from Christopher where he says there's a whole bunch of stuff that Tolkien was sort of doing, Um uh, and he actually doesn't talk that much about his faith, but he said, you know, this Christianity is there, it's there in solution. Uh, and as a sort of <laughs> someone who's done some science, I love that phrase. He's sort of meaning that, that it's it's been dissolved and it's in solution. You won't you won't reach into the the beaker and pull out a sugar cube because the sugar cube has dissolved and gone right through the solution now. You can dip your finger in any part of it and it's sweet, you'll get the taste of that. Uh, but he's purposefully not having it there in big sort of chunky bits for you to find or sort of crude allegories even. Yeah, and Tolkien himself, uh, in a a letter he wrote to a a family friend who was a priest, said, uh, just paraphrasing here, but this this is a thoroughly Christian and Catholic work. But the religious elements have been absorbed into the story. So it's a, it's yeah. a similar sense. Yeah. Um, and it, the more I've looked at this and come to understand uh, what's going on, the sort of underlying presuppositions of, of that world, um, of, of the story, it, it's incredibly rich theologically. It's deeply Christian and deeply Catholic in particular ways. Yeah. Um, that are well beyond... Oh, you know, Frodo is a figure of Christ, or Aragon is a figure mm. of Christ. It, you can go there; it gets complicated because Frodo, in the end, um, doesn't will, willingly throw the ring into Mount Doom. Um, Aragon has his own sort of failures as well, uh, but the whole world, his conception of evil, is thoroughly Christian. This mm. sense of it's actually. Um, Theologically, we call it a privation of the good. It's not mm. a thing in itself. It's always parasitic of the good. Mm. Uh, it can't make of itself. Mm. Uh, it can't make for itself. It only can mock, um, I mm. think Frodo um, says to Sam. Uh, but the the impact of distorted longings and goods, um, evil defeats itself because it can't understand the good. Mm. If you mm. read through it's quite amazing seeing how often evil's defeated because it overreaches, mm. because it plays to its strength, because it doesn't understand the good. Mm. Um, the understanding of the wonder of creation is thoroughly Christian. Mm. Um, the, the, the whole world just, I think, 
the way I've come to understand it is again that when we read it, we're feeling we have have a feeling of what Christianity is really like mm. because it is mm. so thoroughly Christian. I think in its in its fundamental presuppositions. It's fascinating that people pick up on that. Obviously, for um, you know, Christians will often pick up on these things and. Uh, I think of sort of C.S. Lewis, who actually is a bit more allegorical. You can sort of Aslan is a yes. much more direct figure of uh, of Christ. Um, really helpful for Christians. I mean, already we've had three or four times uh, Jules and I have have used bits out of um, you know the line the witch in the wardrobe to explain stuff to our kids. Actually, mm. you know, mm. because they'll ask you a question about God, and you're like, yeah, it's a really good question and quite complex. <laughs> Well, you remember in line the which in the wardrobe we had dot dot dot, so we're just finding it just re- a really useful mm. way of trying to explain to kids who, you know, haven't yet got the even levels of abstract reasoning that you need to understand certain things ha- helpful. But it's fascinating that other people pick up on it. I'm going to play a, a, a for us a quote now, actually from the the Queen of Denmark who was interviewed for um, one of the documentaries. She came across these when she was just a princess. Not everyone gets to say that. No. Uh, you didn't get to say <laughs> when you were just a prince, you discovered that at 11. Um, and it really, it captured her like it's captured so many fans. But, you know, um, nice to have her on the documentary. She's done water uh, watercolour uh, paintings uh, from parts of those things. But here here she is describing that there was maybe more going on than just his his imagination. Letters from readers poured in from all over the world. One of these came from the then Princess Margrethe of Denmark. She had read and been greatly moved by The Lord of the Rings. Ever since I grew up, I have loved fairy stories, legends and sagas, but I do not think I have ever believed in fairies or elves so much before I got to know The Lord of the Rings. I don't think your tale would have been possible if the elves hadn't had a hand in it. There seems to be something more to it than can be explained by scholarly imagination and inspired writing. Interesting, isn't it? There she is attributing to sort of maybe some elvish help uh, something, but she's sort of like, that, that was more than just you, wasn't it? Well, I think Tolkien would say yes. He actually, <laughs> he had a, a real sense of this was a gift. And he writes in a letter, I can't exactly remember the exact wording, of almost this is a process of discovery mm. rather than invention. Mm. Mm. Um, now, partly behind that, he 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 thinks theologically as as we are image bra- um, bearers. Our creative activity is almost splintered fragments of the true light that is God. So he's got a, a rich understanding of our creative activity. Mm. Um, but I think it means a bit more than that. I do think he he just felt he was almost receiving this as a gift. Wow. Awesome, and that so there's quite a humbling or humble attitude mm. to this work that he, he he slaved over. He worked so hard on, mm. but it was a, the work of discovery. Yes, yes. One of the essays of his that I really have enjoyed, and in fact use every year uh, on the fellowship, is Leaf by Niggle, mm. where there's this. Uh, it's probably, and uh, again, Christopher Tolkien says this probably the most autobiographical of <laughs> of his essays and things where uh, Niggle is a painter and, and has this kind of life, life's work that he feels is, is in him to produce, uh, to paint a beautiful tree. But he can only ever put out a leaf. And, and he's good at leaves and he, he manages to paint you know, various leaves, but he never, never captures the full tree. 
And then when he goes on on a journey, which is is, is death, uh, he finds himself confronted by something on the other side. So I've actually got his daughter here telling, reading a little bit from uh, Leaf by Niggle. And uh, she's going to read this passage where, where Niggle sort of discovers uh, something on the other, out on the other side. Niggle pushed open the gate, jumped on the bicycle, and went bowling downhill in the spring sunshine. Before long, he found that the path on which he had started had disappeared, and the bicycle was rolling along over a marvellous turf. It was green and close, and yet he could see every blade distinctly. He seemed to remember having seen or dreamed of that sweep of grass somewhere or other. The curves of the land were familiar somehow. Yes, the ground was becoming level as it should, and now, of course, it was beginning to rise again. A great green shadow came between him and the sun. Niggle looked up, and fell off his bicycle. Before him stood the tree, his tree, finished. If you could say that of a tree that was alive, its leaves opening, its branches growing and bending in the wind, that Niggle had so often felt or guessed, and had so often failed to catch. He gazed at the tree, and slowly he lifted his arms and opened them wide. It's a gift, he said. It's a wonderful part of the of the short story, and uh, in some ways, uh, there's a bit of niggle in all of us. All of us feel there's things we need to be uh, sort of doing or completing, and so uh, it's not just that um, there's uh, an, a, another world that will meet some of the desires. There's another there's another world where the, the fullness of the work we're doing now it'll be caught up into that and and, and be be completed. Um, but I think it's fitting that he, he finishes Lord of the Rings, which he, he he was scared he wouldn't, which is why he wrote Leaf by Niggle sort of along that journey, but that he didn't finish things like the Silmarillion or, or that wasn't pulled together. It's, there's quite a neat juxtaposing there of his fears, some of which happily weren't realised and we end up with the trilogy that's still being voted best work ever, but 70 boxes of unfinished stuff. Yeah. I... Leaf by Niggle is quite an amazing story, and it, we're sort of really now getting into Tolkien's understanding of the role of the arts, um, because he's he's giving actually a real dignity to human create creative activity. Mm. The, the, in that story, um, our creative work, the work of Niggle, sort of spending all this time on this sort of one leaf, gets caught up into God's own work you know, almost allegorically in the story, but that's mm. the sense. Mm. And given reality, it's actually how he ends uh, his on fairy stories with a very, um, the lecture on a very um, similar thought. So for Tolkien, he, he talks about, he's talked about these um, gifts of fantasy or fairy stories. And he talks about the gospel as, a, in some ways, a fairy story. Right. It, it's full of, wonder and strangeness yes it meets some of those desires it's full of a heightened reality a sense of the heightened reality going on here it's got the best sort of happy ending like inbreaking of joy in the midst of darkness you can imagine but he says 
But what's different about the gospel is it's it happened in history. Right. It's yes. myth or story breaking into our primary world. Right. Yes. And he then says one of the things about the gospel is that the presence of the greatest does not depress the small. He says just because God's told the best story doesn't diminish our own stories. Right. Um, and he writes, story, fantasy, still go on and should go on. Um, and in fact, the Gospels hallowed our stories, especially the happy ending. The Christian has still to work with mind as well as body to suffer, hope and die, but he may now perceive that all his bents and faculties have a purpose which can be redeemed. So great is the bounty with which he has been treated that he may now perhaps fairly dare to guess that in fantasy he may actually assist in the effoliation and multiple enrichment of creation. Mm. So that effoliation mm. language, that actually through our stories, God enables us um, to actually enrich creation. They're given being. Mm. They actually exist in the world, and something only exists in the world because God allows it for mm. Tolkien. Mm. And so our creative works are actually given an enormous dignity for Tolkien. Um, and in the future, they might be redeemed and almost unrecognizable as our own bodies will be, but they're still caught up in that work of God. Yes, yes. So in the few minutes that we've got left, maybe if we do come up that level and just talk about the, the arts more generally, you know, sort of theology and the arts, um, using art in terms of like people who would share Tolkien's worldview, but they're expressing their art in, in, in different forms. Um, for a start, maybe I know you've, you, you've thought a little bit about this. There are, there are many different forms, right? And if, if everything could be said in a book, we wouldn't need painting. And if everything could be painted, we wouldn't need sculpture or dance. Mm. Yeah, I mean, what is art doing? What's, a, what's the gift of art? You know, story, painting, all these things. What, what is it doing? Well, one of the realities of human nature is to understand our own experience. Often we need to recreate it. We need to paint it or write a story about it or write a poem about it. Mm. And in recreating it, we sort of look at it mm. and it, it brings attention and focus to it. And in some ways transfigures that experience mm. and helps us see it, if it's done well, more truly. Um, the assumption there is that there's a thickness and depth to reality that's not reducible. You can't say all the things that need to be said about the mystery of life through an equation or a proposition mm. or a system. Those do give you access to some aspects of reality, but you also need a poem. Oh no, there's nothing can be done to keep at bay age and age's evils, horehair, ruck and wrinkle, drooping, dying, death's worst, winding sheets, tombs and worms, and tumbling to decay. And that's doing something different than a painting. Yes. And that's doing something different from a story. But they're all angles in on actually this fundamental reality that we don't see clearly without actually the, the role of human art, I think to help us see our own experience, to sort of step back and, and pay attention to it in new ways. Yes. That's what fantasy is doing, but that's what good painting or music or, or poetry is doing as well. 
Yeah, I mean, I was describing to you a couple of days ago um, that Jules and I went down to Wellington and saw this exhibition that, that was on uh, Van Gogh's paintings. And both of us, actually, our, our favourite painting of his is um, uh, Café in Paris, I think it's called, or Parisian Café. Uh, and it's just a, an outdoor little balcony uh, at dusk. And so the sky's got that dark blue and then the orange light just coming out of the café. It's sort of drawing me in mm. like every orange light that's ever kind of appeared as I was a kid running around outside in the dark and it turning dusk. Or it's just, as you say, it's capturing all of these moments in, in, the, in the one painting. And also, I think, pointing ahead to, to many more evenings in cafes or with friends or, you know, enjoying hospitality or giving it to others. Uh, and it's all captured in this one sort of painting or, or, or moment. Yeah, it's giving um, our experience back to us in a yeah. way that draws out the essence or, or a meaning in it. And then your next time we're back in a cafe and you, you're, you're almost experiencing that through the lens of that painting uh, as well. Yes. So it, it can have a profound impact and, and suggest what you look at, what you listen to, what you read are going to be shaping your imagination yes for yes. of your own experience in life yeah yeah that's a great yeah that's a great description of it i imagine that the same i've felt those same things through say a sad song mm. that i find myself just thinking about i don't know the, the death of my dad or other other things that have happened and, and, and through the song you're just uh, again re-experiencing those um no doubt processing them on levels that just other forms can't can't do. Yeah, and I think that that is a great gift of art to help us make sense of our experience, um, to point at dimensions of our experience that we sometimes miss or perhaps sometimes aren't ready to to face or the fullness of it in the moment uh, you just can't experience. Um, so there's a real connection between truth and beauty. They go together. Mm. Um, mm. Beauty, I think, is is a vehicle for truth that helps us sort of enter in and, and experience it as delightful or and sometimes confronting or challenging. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Look, in some ways, we always said this was going to be a tough assignment to do Tolkien fantasy and the just tack on the whole of the arts at the end sure. just in the last <laughs> five, six minutes. But as a way of a bit of a, a taster or a teaser of what's to come, this is a conversation that you've really picked up at Venn and I know Donald, John, others who have sort of joined you in that, um, that, that really a bit of a journey that you're going to go on in terms of looking at theology and the arts and how do we do that better. Tell us just a little bit about that, a little bit about sort of what that what that's starting to look like, um, the, the, the interest in that, uh, maybe the, the, the loss of that by the evangelical church that hasn't maybe given the arts the space that it's needed to. Yeah, just in the the next thirty seconds. <laughs> a ta- rehash a, ta- the, uh, a, ta- a taster for the next uh, ten part yeah. podcast. Yeah, um, I I think just speaking personally, part of my interest here is actually the sense in which the the way there's been huge benefits to the modern world. So I don't mean to discount that, mm-hmm. but it does obscure certain elements of our life mm-hmm. and our experience from us. Mm-hmm. And you see in someone like Tolkien uh, and other uh, writers and artists, actually, it, they are recovering something for us. Art has this power 
to to give back to us more fully our experience. And for Christians, I think, um, there's so much baggage around and, and over-familiarity and actually almost possessiveness, mm. to pick up those terms from our first podcast, that stops us seeing even the gospel clearly, certainly stops others seeing it. It's this sort of coin that's been worn down and lost its sort of its value. Art can restore some of that because it can take it up in ways that surprise us. C.S. Lewis has this phrase about, you know, we can steal past um, the sleeping dragons mm-hmm. through, through art. You know, so there's an ability for it to um, communicate something about the Christian vision of the universe. I think Tolkien does this so well. Um, that gives it back to us as something wonderful, mm. something delightful, mm. something that feels true and good. And so we're experiencing it again as we're recovering it. Mm. Mm. And I think that's the power of um, actually art is to um, restore the world to us in particular ways. So I think there's just rich um, work for us to do, and I'm very much at the beginning of that journey in my own understanding, uh, to explore what's going on there mm. uh, in, a, in a world that's so desperate, I think, that feels for many people so flat and diminished. What, mm. what can art offer as a true expression of the Christian vision of reality? Yeah, yeah. Oh, awesome, mate. Well, look, you know, as we as we do bring this to a close, uh, very much looking forward to that, and uh, just know that there will be there will be aspect of that that will pop up in in future podcasts to come, uh, no doubt. And uh, yeah, so so thank you for doing that work, and and thank you for the the contagious nature of that. It's a it's a bit of a terrible time to use the word contagious, isn't it? But your <laughs> your love of of sort of fantasy and of this whole genre, it's it's contagious as we sit and talk about it. You know, I know uh, folk who have been listening will have felt some of that come through just in audio form. Just your your love of this, and I, I just know that that journey will be the same. Others will be drawn up into that. Mm-hmm. Um, others will probably for the first time hear, hey, like uh, Lewis was able to say to Tolkien, you, you're not going mad. This is your yes. way of viewing the world, and I know that you're very much looking forward to encouraging others who feel that same uh, kind of draw towards using the arts in that way. Not yeah, not using it, but they, but they feel called to yeah. contribute through the arts in that way. Mm. Yeah, awesome, mate. Well, look, thanks so much for uh, for doing this. I think you've um, we maybe both have earned a beer. I often do. I was just thinking that actually. <laughs> exact same thing. And so what better way to go out than to hear the uh, the actor James Nesbitt describing uh, what it's like to sort of drink beer. He's responding to an interviewer's question, how to, how to drink beer like a dwarf. <laughs> so here he, here he goes. See you later. See you, mate. Thank you. What's the trick to drinking beer like a dwarf? I do it really fast. I mean, we have tankers, these, these uh, you know, big, big uh, wooden pint glasses, if you wish, uh, and we just, you just down them really quickly and burp really loud if you can. Uh, it's a messy affair, really. It spills on your beard or on your face. And there's, no, uh, there's no etiquette or manners involved in, in drinking beer as a dwarf. I've had a lifetime of rehearsing for that, so yeah, it's, uh, it was pretty straightforward for me.